Welcome to the Energy Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and today we're talking about the use of big data analytics in the oil and gas industry with Steve Romerman of Lone Star Analysis, a North Texas-based software and solutions company. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Shelby. It's great to be here. So oil and analytics, that's not something that most people would really think to combine. So from, you know, from a, an outsider's point of view, I mean, really, how important is analytics and big data to the energy world? What kind of difference is it making? Well, some people would say that, at least in exploration, uh, the oil patch has really been a leader in big data because we're approaching the 100th anniversary of seismic. And of course, seismic data collection and signal processing is enormously data hungry. And, um, you know, there's, there was a time when seismic drove the leading edge of high performance computing. So some people would say that that's been there for a long time. And I think that's right. With the development of unconventional drilling and needing to manage horizontals, We've seen a lot of that same kind of data intensity move into uh, well development and completion. But until pretty recently, that's where analytics and oil patch have sort of parted ways. Now, I think what you're starting to see in what people call the, the digital oil field, you're starting to see analytics begin to, to approach maybe what other industries call lean production. So, you know, we think at Lone Star that production is where we're really going to begin to see enormous benefits in the way we think about how an oil company ought to be run. Yeah, so so I understand. So the digitization of of the drilling and especially the aspects that you're seeing there at, at Lone Star Analysis. I mean, what are what are the true impacts that that you're seeing? Well, I, I think there are there are several. Um, you know, the groundwork for this has been laid for a long time. Where uh, the majors and super majors have worked hard to agree on data standards for things that used to be collected with clipboards and, you know, folks in four-wheel drive pickup trucks. Uh, that That's led to then adding sensors where you can remotely get data out. One of the ways I think a lot of people are beginning is to try to figure out how to do two things. First, how to reduce the number of, of visits to a production pad have to be made so that I can just re, you know do things remotely. The real leverage comes when that human visit has really been shaped by analytics so that the person is the right person, they have the right materials or the right uh, skills with them so that uh, I can do production much leaner. And that, that idea of lean production is something that we see in the other uh, industries Lone Star serves. We're starting to see that really begin to catch fire. Well, so I understand Lone Star Analysis, they do work with several other industries. And something that, uh, that, that I read is that you're able to use a lot of the smart techniques and agile, lean uh, production to be able to apply that to the oil and gas industry. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we really are big believers in that. And, you know, some, some customers view that as a big strength. Other, other customers sort of believe what they do is really unique and they're skeptical. And, and that's fine. I mean, I think um, everybody is a little different. Everybody's business is a little different. We, we certainly recognize that. 
but but for example, if you think about a maintenance problem, there's a, a lot of benefits to be made in maintenance. If you sort of just decompose a maintenance problem from a, a math perspective or an analysis perspective, you know, I've got three or four categories of things, whether it's an airplane or a truck or an oil pad. I have, you know, some things that happen because a calendar has gone by. I have some things that happen because I've got so many hours of operation. I have some things that happen uh, because something unplanned or unscheduled happened, something something broke or is about to break. Those sort of generic uh, ways to think about maintenance activities, w- which are very expensive, are, are not unique to any one industry. So we, we think that what we do where we get cycles of learning, say, from uh, aerospace or from transportation, uh, then applies pretty neatly to a lot of the energy problems we see. Well, so, I mean, all of that machinery, it, it does take a lot of maintenance and, and supervision, and that certainly gets costly. So when energy companies or operations aren't utilizing analytics, I mean, what are the typical issues that you're going to see? Well, we we tend to lump them into two big chunks. One one chunk is what we call the, bo- the bottom line, which is how much profit do you make? And when your uh, production facility is in trouble and it's hard to maintain it, you spend a lot more money on maintenance than you really need to. You're paying for expedite fees, uh, something that perhaps could have been fixed in one truck roll takes three, four, five, ten truck rolls. So the, the cost of maintenance can, can really explode. The other thing that we talk about is the top line. People want to keep the well producing because production is is revenue. Well, you know, what does it take to keep an oil well producing? We had um, one producer up in, in the Bakken who was uh, using a horizontal pumping system to in, inject saline back down into the well. And they had a triple redundant pumping system, three really big independent pumps with really only one running and two on standby because their failure rate was so high. That's a case where you'd really like to see predictive analytics or prescriptive analytics. Predictive analytics will say, I don't have a problem right now, but it's pretty reasonable to think that I'm going to have a problem. Prescriptive analytics takes us a step farther and says, that problem that we think is likely to happen before too much longer it's caused by some specific cause, and now I can roll a truck with somebody who's got the parts and the expertise to deal with that particular issue, as opposed to having somebody have to come out and diagnose and then call back again. So predictive and prescriptive analytics, uh, in that case, change the math where it still made sense in order to keep production going to have a redundant system, but only one backup was needed instead of two. Right, because you have a better uh, warning system, I guess, if you will, to know when some of these failures uh, may be approaching or when, when some of the equipment is reaching its, its limit, I guess. Y- yes, exactly. And, and most, most equipment in the oil field has, is the result of careful engineering. And so that, that engineering went into the completion stage is what sets you up to be able to do a really good job of both prediction and prescription uh, if you're thoughtful about how you employ production analytics. Right. Well, so with all of that uh, machinery, 
and being able to track all of that stuff. I mean, that that's a lot of data. And I, there's certainly always challenges in sifting through all of that data. So how do you effectively, I guess, process all of the information so it's not overwhelming? That's a really good question. And, um, you know, this is one of those things where you have to start out with saying it depends. Yeah. There, there's two or three problems. One, one problem we talk about is a thing we call uh, Domino's Rule. Domino's Rule says if you can't order a pizza and have it delivered, you probably don't have all the bandwidth you need. So where with seismic processing, people sort of carry their recording mechanisms around with them, that, that, that data typically is not dealt with real time, or if it is uh, dealt with real time, there's a, a, a van full of computers and servers that are there until the need is done. For production, you know, very often I'm dealing with very low data rate uh, in terms of connection. One way that we think you have to be willing to deal with uh, data flows is, is to have a pretty flexible solution architecture. So some, some folks really want to go do cloud processing. Well, cloud processing is great if you can get the data out. Uh, we, we think that you have to start out with a data architecture that really is agnostic about whether you do what some people call edge processing, where you do the processing close to the pad or at the pad where, where the data comes from, or what some people call fog processing, where you sort of distribute where the, where the processing happens or cloud processing, where I ship everything back to a, a cloud and, and do the processing back there. We, we think that if you don't maintain that kind of architectural flexibility, you're, you're likely to have uh, problems because, again, you have to ask, well, can I order a pizza here? And if I can't, and for example, in most of the Permian, you can't, then the chances are pretty good data backhaul will, will be a problem or at least be very expensive. So I, I guess I don't understand why then there is a difference between, you know, analytics that are, are gathered there at, at the pad, then fog analytics, and then cloud analytics. Like, why does where that information, I guess, is collected or processed make a difference in the outcomes? Well, that's a great question. And, and the short answer is it should not make a difference. But it, but it turns out that if you don't think through how you implement your solution, it can so some analytic approaches are extremely uh, computationally intensive. They require a lot of computer crunching. Uh, if you have analytics that are intended for the cloud, then that's fine because when you're in the cloud, you can generally get all the computing power you want. When you're, when you're out at, at what's called the edge of the network, where, the, where most pad sites reside, uh, very often you've, you've don't really have unlimited computing resources. In fact, you have very limited computing resources. That means the analytics have to be designed to run on those light uh, computational power footprints. And uh, so you can design that up front if you think about it up front. That's why we really advocate for thinking through the architecture, you know, sort of early on, because we've seen some ideas that really were very promising but only with a cloud architecture. And we, you know, if, if somebody owns thousands of wells, like a super major, then the chances are really good that a fair amount of that portfolio can't be served by a cloud approach. You'd mentioned before, before our, our podcast is about um, the, I guess the, the, 
temptation to think of data science, that it's it's apples and, and apples that you're comparing, you know, the information for an oil patch versus the you know, information for Google. And, and you say that, you know, unless your business is selling advertising and your analytics relate to like a natural language, it's, that's, that's a, a poor comparison. And so you said that you're seeing digital oil field projects fail because of that confusion. What do you mean by that? There are some very powerful methods that work really well for consumer online interaction. And we a lot of those we put in the category of just being less wrong. Um, Google is one example. Another is Amazon. Amazon has about a half a billion different line items they can sell you on the website. So if, if you buy something from Amazon, they know they have about 10 seconds to make a suggestion to sell you something else. If they pick randomly from that half billion, they, they really have no hope of making a good suggestion. If they pop up a bunch of suggestions, each of which has a 90% chance of being wrong, that's a 10% chance of being right. That's, you know, they, that's probably worth about $2 billion a month to Amazon. Being wrong 90% of the time is, is worth $2 billion a month to them. Well, that's not the problem that most people in the oil patch have. So that's, that's one example of where we think there's important difference with respect to how you apply AI and sort of classic big data. The, the other one is what do you mean by big data? So there was a report recently from a major that's been applying uh, AI to their well completion. And what they concluded was all the seismic data, including the micro seismic from drilling from 400 well completions really wasn't enough to train the classifier uh, to make a dramatic improvement in their well completions. Now, there was there was some improvement, but it wasn't very dramatic. And there, there's a Society of Petroleum Engineers paper on that that people can look up if they want to. And, and that's an example of where if you're a Google and you have people searching all the time, essentially human beings are pumping data into your classifiers and it really doesn't cost you anything. Whereas 400 wells of data, that's that's enormously expensive for that oil company, and yet it still wasn't enough. So, you know, what is big data? Well, big data is pretty big, and even though the oil patch data seems big, sometimes it's not big enough to train a classifier. Yeah. Are there, and pardon my not understanding it, but so then in those cases where there's not, like even those 400 wells isn't enough information to be able to, to make those predictive um, analysis solutions, can then you look across um, competitors in the industry? Are there averages that can be looked at to, to help uh, balance that? Or does it, is really the onus on each individual company to have enough data to be able to create some type of prediction? Well, certainly people are uh, looking across different plays and and uh, in some cases where uh, data becomes public, you know, there are some places like Canada where nearly all the data becomes a matter of public record. That's a really promising approach. But there are other places where you just really can't use what, what we think of as sort of a brute force machine learning approach. And in those cases, that we just think there are other methods that are better. There are other analytic methods that are not as data greedy as the kinds of things that you see Silicon Valley using for interacting with human beings. Uh, those, those are usually driven by known cause and effect. 
And with just a little bit of thought, you can dramatically reduce the amount of data you have to have to do pretty powerful analytics. And those are really the methods Lone Star starts with. We, we tend to start with um, data methods that mathematicians would call parsimonious, which means they're stingy. They don't need a lot of data. And we, we tend to only as a, maybe not a last resort, but as a latter resort, go to kind of classic big data stuff, which mathematicians call greedy because they they eat lots and lots of data and maybe more data than they really need. Oh, okay. And so with all of this information and the data that that is available and isn't available, uh, what role do um, uh, the analysts still play? How important is is that human touch um, better than than what, um, what sheer numbers can show? Well, the, the human role, I think, is changing. And if, if you think about, for example, somebody who is monitoring production offshore, and maybe their main interest is health and safety, an enormous amount of data is presented to an operator like that. And there's almost always multiple alarms going off, some of which are extraneous, many of which don't matter, and every once in a while, one that does. Having some sort of robot to sort through that and and help the human focus attention on the things that really probably need intervention is is an example of a role where a human-machine partnership is really powerful. Um, There are a bunch of things that we probably are not ready to let um, machines do fully automatically for us. And another example would be theft. Theft's a big problem in a lot of places. It's almost always connected to some kind of gathering or pipeline system. Uh, watching for weeks at a time to try to find out why or how someone's stealing from you is very expensive and very tedious and full of errors because humans who get bored make errors. Uh, a, a robot that just sits and watches for some front, you know, an anomaly that seems to be associated that might be an indicator of theft, it's probably not enough to call the local sheriff, but it's enough to tap your operator to say, hey, take a look at this camera and see whether you want to call sheriff. Right. So certainly uh, the robots aren't taking over quite yet, huh? No, I think that's right. And I, I think what, what the way I think of it is the, the robots can make the humans more productive and the the robots can help me have the right attention at the right place at the right time, which really ought to be better for everybody. And uh, so as we start to wrap up, I'm, I'm just curious, I mean, of the of the things that you're you're seeing in the oil and gas industry as a whole, I mean, you know, as CEO of, of Lone Star Analysis, you're, you're you've got a great um, overview of what's happening. What's the last interesting thing that you learned about um, about analytics data or, or the way that your, your company is supporting others um, that, that you just found personally fascinating? That was kind of an aha moment for you. I think the biggest surprise that I've had is how many problems that seem very different are in fact the same problem over and over again. Uh, one, one of the things that we see is an enormous number of problems relate to electric motors that are driving something on a production pad. That might be a pump or it might be something else. And one way or another, 
the electrical hookup and that electrical motor has got a number of really interesting ways to fail. And so what we're seeing is solutions that we're developing, say, for horizontal pumping applies to uh, downhole uh, electric submersible pumps, applies to lots of other things. So what, what we're seeing is when you begin to break the problem up into bite-sized chunks, those chunks start to look really, really familiar in a way that's so common, it's sort of surprising. Well, Steve, I certainly do appreciate your time and, and you know, thanks so much for joining me. Shelby, it's been great talking with you. And thanks to you listeners for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and create a video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk.